unity itself. Look back at the first part of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 and the very, very initial letter that Paul writes to them here speaks indeed of this division. He says in chapter 1 verse 10, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And then he goes on to talk about these factions, some following Paul, some following Apollos, some following Cephas or Peter, and some saying they are following Christ. And he says, of course, in verse 13, is Christ divided? No, not within the unity of the body. That's not the way it's supposed to be, this division. There's supposed to be unity and love and fellowship and graciousness. He even talks about divisions in the church in chapter 3. And even in chapter 6, he talks about lawsuits among believers in the church, in Corinth. And now when he's talking about the celebration of the Lord's Supper, He's again chastising them and confronting them because while they're supposed to have unity around the Lord's Supper, around the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ and their mutual love from Christ because of His death, because of His satisfaction, because of His paying of the penalty for our sins, we should be unified around the theme of Christ and His being given to us And Paul says, yet what you're doing is that in your selfishness, you are actually being disunified. So one of the aspects of the Lord's Supper, first and foremost, is our opportunity to have unity among one another. Not disunity, not divisions, not factions. He says, in the first place, verse 18, when you come together as a church, which means when you come together for worship, when you are meeting together, when you're leaving your own homes and you come to the home in which the church resides, where you're meeting, where you're worshiping, I hear that there are divisions among you. He said it in chapter 1, he said it in chapter 3, he said it again in chapter 6. He's saying it even now, there are divisions. And he says, I believe it in part. And I know that there are going to be factions among you. Why? Because wherever there are factions, there are those who are going to be the genuine among you. Wherever are are those who are going to be the fake, the real deal will come to the surface. Maybe, possibly what he's saying here is that some of the division is caused by those who aren't really genuine Christians at all. By the end of his second letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he even comes to the place where he says this, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Or do you not know that Jesus Christ lives in you unless you are discredited? That word discredited is the word adakimos, Dokimos is that great word that comes out of the artisan shop, out of that place in which those precious metals were put in that smelting, in that pot, in that stove, in that furnace, in that oven, in which when that precious metal went inside and with the burning 
of that place and with the intense heat of that stove, it burned all of the impurities away and that which was left was pure gold. And if you put the little alpha privative, adakimas, in front of that word dakimas, dakimas means tested and found worthy, and if you negate the word by putting that little a in front like atheist, someone who doesn't believe in God, adakimas means that you might very well be tested and found unworthy. Tested and found to be a fake, a phony, a fraud. And he says here in verse 19, There will be, there must be factions among you. Why? Because those who are genuine, those who are tested and found worthy, those who are the true, those who are the bona fide Christians, they're going to rise to the surface and they're going to show up and they're going to say, this disunity cannot exist. He's appealing to those who are true to manifest themselves. Undoubtedly, that's why he says in verse 28, let a person examine himself, dakimas. Let a person examine himself to, to, to test and to prove the genuineness of their faith and the genuineness of their desire to be unified. The Lord's Supper, if it's anything, beloved, is the opportunity for us to come together and to express the unity of our faith. Not divisions, not factions, not sin, not irreverence, not selfishness, Our unity is at stake here. That's what he's saying. Unity is at the top of the list in Paul's mind of what it means to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a church. Secondly, there's what we might call our fellowship. Our fellowship. Not just our unity, but our fellowship. Look at verse 20. When you come together... And that's the second time, by the way, that he's mentioned this. When you come together, he said it in verse 18, when you come together as a church, verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Apparently what was happening is that people were bringing food from their homes and in addition to celebrating this Lord's Supper in their midst, they also probably had what was called in the first century a love feast and these these that had an abundance of food, would bring that food to the fellowship and they would eat in front of others who didn't have much at all or anything and they would eat and they would be merry and they would be jovial and they would be laughing and they would have all the fun in the world while those who had nothing would sit on the side and simply watch. Massive selfishness. He says, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Are you humiliating, he says, those who have nothing? You expect me to commend you in this? No, I will not. And what he's saying is, you not only have divisions among you, but but you have a sham fellowship. A sham fellowship. You, You call this fellowship? You're having all that you want. You're eating all the abundance of your own produce. And you're not giving it to those who have need. You're humiliating them. They don't have anything. 
You're not willing to share with them. That's not fellowship. Fellowship was that idea, that koinonia, that table fellowship in the, in the Near East or in the Middle East as we know it now. The idea of having table fellowship was the essence of such fellowship. Sharing. Bringing the abundance of your food and sharing it with others. We would say it today, our hospitality, having someone over, bringing food to the fellowship and having an abundance for everyone. That's why he says in verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. Don't start eating Don't start consuming all that you have and leaving those who are the have-nots out of the business. Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. If you have enough to eat and be satisfied at your own home, if you have enough to drink, certainly don't come here and drink too much and actually become drunk. No wonder he says the first word in verse 22 in our English Bibles, What? What? You have houses to eat and drink in? Do it there. Verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, the third time he's mentioned that, when you come together, when you are worshiping together, when you come into the fellowship of one another, it will not be for judgment. What kind of judgment? You're not judging the body rightly. You're not ministering to the body. You're only concerned about yourself. You're only consuming your own desires. No, he says, the fellowship of the church and the wondrous celebration of the Lord's Supper is being canceled out by the selfishness. I mean, can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who said, according to Paul in Acts 20, it is more blessed to what? Give than to receive. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus blessing this event of his own table with people who are manifestly selfish and not sharing out of their abundance with others food and drink, not waiting for one another, not celebrating in the fellowship meal, the love feast. It's making that which comes after the Lord's Supper a sham. No, the Lord's Supper, if it's anything, it's our unity together and our fellowship together. And by the way, I don't know how often they celebrated the Lord's Supper, but I do know this. In Acts 2.42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And there is a hint, if you read the book of Acts, that they did it quite regularly. I don't know if it was every single Lord's Day, but it could have been, it might have been. And certainly, like we celebrate it once a month, It is a special occasion. And can you imagine if we celebrated that tonight and if we had a love feast afterwards and if we were able to celebrate the bread and the cup, which admittedly is not that which is going to satiate everybody, and we had fellowship time afterward and we had a meal together and there were some people sitting off to the side who had nothing because there was nothing left because everybody else crowded them out and ate everything by themselves. There undoubtedly would be some of us here saying, why are you doing this? That's not fellowship. That's not table ministry. That's not reaching out to others. No, the greatest 
the highest, the most profound collective experience that the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ could ever experience is the intimate fellowship we enjoy in the presence of Jesus Christ himself at his table and our fellowship together around a meal, around the time in which we're celebrating his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's his table. And we should have sweet fellowship with one another and sweet unity and not the things that they were communicating here. Our unity and our fellowship. Thirdly, Let's call it our remembrance. Our remembrance. Now, admittedly, what I've taught thus far is entirely negative, right? I mean, they were disunified. They were lacking true fellowship. And now Paul, after confronting them, after admonishing them, goes on to the positive, on to the proactive. And he says, look, this is what the Lord's Supper is all about. It's for our remembrance. And look at what he says in verse 23. For I received from the Lord, here's his positive teaching, here's proactivity, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, that's the word for Eucharist, he broke it, he broke that bread, divided it up, and said, this is my body which is for you. Not which is broken for you, Why? Why does it not say that? Because remember, the Lord's legs were not broken in fulfillment of Scripture. So the Lord's Supper is not that sense in which the bread is broken as though Jesus' body was broken. It's the idea that it's given. It's given. This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You know what Paul isn't saying here as many churches might say, have taught, is that this is the literal body of Christ. This is the literal blood of Christ, that which we celebrate at the Lord's table. Of course it isn't. And one of the reasons why it isn't the literal body and blood of Christ that we celebrate every month of our lives here at Thousand Oaks Bible Church, it's because if you think about it, when Jesus told them on that night in which he was betrayed at the Last Supper in that upper room, he was alive when he said it. So how could he be construing the idea that since he was alive when he said it, that he was going to have them think in their own minds of the literal body of Christ, the literal blood of Christ? No, this is obviously a memorial idea. This is what Jesus is doing when he signals by that signification that that bread represents my body. That cup represents my blood. In fact, the word is, this is my body, this cup is the new covenant, could actually be translated, this represents my body. This represents my blood. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about, like we said this morning about baptism, it's a visual, a vivid illustration when we come together and we partake of the bread and the cup of the body and blood of the Lord. It isn't literally that. 
We don't re-sacrifice Christ when we partake of that, as some teach. No, what we say is, it represents the body of Christ. It represents the cup of the Lord, the new covenant in His blood. And what we are to do, my friends, is to remember the sacrifice of Christ. It's our remembrance together. We think about that on the night He was betrayed by Judas. And then he went to that garden to be found out, to be arrested, willingly so. And then he had those unjust trials. And then he was crucified on that cross. And then he was buried in that tomb. And then he was resurrected from the dead. And when he instituted that supper, and as we memorialize it, as we think of its significance, almost 2,000 years later, we remember the Lord's death. We remember that sacrifice. We remember His blood. We remember His body given up for us willingly so. That's what we're doing when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We remember. Why would we need to be reminded? Because we so easily forget. Our days are long. The work is hard. We get busy. We get distracted. And when he says, as often as you do this, and for us, it's once a month, either on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening, as often as you do this, this is a gentle yet clear reminder that in the busyness and distractions of your week, of your month, the Lord Jesus Christ was given for you. His blood availed for you. We should remember this because we so easily forget. Our unity, our fellowship, our remembrance, and fourthly, our proclamation. Our proclamation. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. You proclaim. It's our proclamation. Now, yes, we do that with each other as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We proclaim to each other the Lord's death. The person to your left, the person to your right, the person behind you, the person in front of you. You are, by the very act of your participation in this meal, you are proclaiming to them by your ingesting that bread, by your taking that cup to your lips, I am proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ to everybody around me. The very thing you do in your neighborhood when you leave for the church and when you come here and when you have the opportunity to talk to your neighbor, you are proclaiming to them the importance of the unity and the fellowship and the remembrance and the proclamation that we share together. It all fits into this idea that we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. And what kind of proclamation is it? Look at chapter 15. Verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Don't miss that. First importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 
I want you to see in chapter 15, verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Does that not sound exactly like 1 Corinthians 11:23? For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Isn't that very striking, similar language? The gospel is what was given to me, delivered to me. I received this and now I deliver it to you. And so it is with the Lord's Supper. I received instructions from the Lord and I'm now delivering it to you. And here's what I'm delivering, that Jesus Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised from the third day according to the scriptures. This is our proclamation. And it's not only our proclamation, fourthly, but fifthly and finally, it is also our self-examination. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person himself then examine. Examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that, of course, could include this way that they were treating each other. But it also could be that which is inward to us. We are examining ourselves. We're examining our our hearts. We're examining our motives. We're examining our lives. We're confessing sin. We're seeking forgiveness of others. We are examining everything about us so that we might be a clean vessel having sought and been granted forgiveness so that we are not like those who are not judging the body rightly and who are drinking judgment on himself even to the degree that many of you are weak and ill and some have died. It's a very serious examination, isn't it? I go before the Lord. I ask the Lord to reveal things to me about my life, my treatment of others. But he says in verse 31, if we judged ourselves truly or rightly, we would not be judged. And when we examine ourselves and therefore we're asking the Lord to judge us, and when we are judged by the Lord as our Heavenly Father, and when He disciplines us, we want that so that we would not be condemned along with the world. The Lord's Supper is also our self-examination. It's our unity. It's our fellowship. It is those things. It's our remembrance. It is our proclamation. And it's also our examination. This is that table. This is that supper. This is an ordinance of the church. And as I said this morning, this is that ordinance that is perpetual. We have it every month of our lives. And we do so because we would examine ourselves monthly to be sanctified, to be holy, And that examination causes us to look at our lives and look at the body and judging them rightly, judging ourselves rightly, so that when we come together to eat, we're waiting for one another, we're feeding one another, we're coming together not for judgment, but for examination. And this, the table of the Lord, is that which the Lord uses along with so many other things, but chiefly and principally and excitedly and joyfully, He uses the Lord's Supper to allow us then to examine ourselves, to proclaim, to remember, to fellowship, and to have unity with one another. Let's bow together. Father, this is 
This is the Lord's Supper. This is your table. This is our communion. Not just with each other, but with you. And we desire to have unity and not disunity like the Corinthians. We desire to have fellowship and not divisions with one another. We do desire to have a remembrance of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we desire to have that proclamation that we are indeed proclaiming the Lord's death in the participation of this table. And we do want to examine ourselves so that we would not be judged along with the world, but having already been judged and by already having Christ's cross avail for us through His body and through His blood. We partake of these elements for all of these five ways and so much more. Lord, allow us to participate even now in this greatest, highest demonstration of our unity, fellowship, remembrance, proclamation, and examination. In Jesus' name, Amen.